The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, science, chocolate, and a billionaire asshole. Thursday the 19th of November 2020, in this third End of Spring series episode, I'm joined once again by Upali Divisekra, who, as you know, is a science communicator, nanotechnologist, microbiologist, and shameless dinosaur evangelist. Look, you know who she is. She, she was on the pod just nine weeks ago. We talk about inspirational things. The amazing thing about science fiction is that it's, you know, it's a fairy tale that can come true, but you can make it come true. We note that people listen to Elon Musk because he's a billionaire. And that's why it's an issue when he he talks complete horse shit like this. And you'll learn what this refers to. You know, that sounds like a, uh, a very sweet hipster rendition of 70s cooking. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm Happy Birthday Coronavirus Space Karen Christmas with Ubali Divisekra. Oh yeah, and I'll uh, be singing a song. True story. T-minus 15 seconds. Falcon 9 is configured for flight. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition. And resilience rises. Not even gravity contains humanity when we explore as one for all. And resilience rises. Not even gravity contains humanity when we explore as one for all, she said, which I'll assume for the moment is not a QAnon dog whistle. Hello, Upali Divisekra. Hello, Still. How are you? I'm, look, I'm, I'm bubbling along very nicely, thank you. I uh, have had a lovely day watching the juvenile magpies who've invaded the forest in oh. search of yummy, yummy cicadas. Oh, that would be lovely. It is, they're except so they're like cute. a teen gang. Well, <laughs> they are, but they're also thug birds, right? Yeah, so <laughs> It's like before they become the murder birds, they're thug birds. <laughs> they are, they are. And, and look, I've set up a kind of little feeding spot for birds outside my, my window. So you're just asking and, for trouble? Well, I am, but we get crimson rosellas and brown cuckoo doves ah. and little red-browed finches and big fat waddly wonga pigeons and stuff, right? Nice. Except now with all the cicadas here there's this whole clan of magpies have got yeah beauty we'll eat them and they've they after what two or three even four years of drought we've had we've now had a really wet winter so all of the critters are breeding like like crazy and and you get like we've got 12 magpies descend oh. and like eight of them are juveniles and it's just Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, no, they're so you can you can always tell that they're juveniles because you know they've got a little bit lighter, fluffier that's uh, right yeah. plumage, and um, they 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 their sounds are a little bit stranger. Some of the sounds, you know, because they're still practicing, you know. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, no. Well, can I just say though, if you mm. do find cicada shells, I mean, you know, the, you know when they've molted, like if you do yes. find them. Like, I am coming back to Australia soon, so if you just happen upon them, I would really like to have them. Because you're hungry? Apart from that, 
maybe because they're so stunning. The wings on cicadas oh, yes. are so beautiful. And there's this wonderful artist I follow on Instagram called Sculpturess, and she actually um, coats insects with gold and silver leaf. Oh, wow. And makes these incre- uh, incredible uh, sculptures. Well, you know, they're basically you know, gilded insect mounts, but they're really beautiful. And so I wanted to sort of try my hand at that. And there's also another artist on uh, Instagram who actually crystallizes and opalizes things. So he opalizes and crystallizes uh, uh, crystals onto snail shells and onto butterflies and all sorts of things. And it's just amazing. And he recently... How do you opalize things? What's the process? Well, I thought this was a deep under earth crystalline thing well this is the thing i thought so as well and so i was really astonished uh so his name is tyler thrasher and i'm and i will actually sort of tweet about him later today because i wanted to promote something that he's doing he's this a fantastic uh scientist artist he's a chemist um and so opal is basically lots of little silica particles and you know they're sort of reflecting and diffracting light uh and the it turns out that you can actually just use silica particles and I, I looked up the recipe, but I think he is this is a different one because this recipe takes months. <laughs> but it can be done. And so it's actually a relatively simple solution. And what happens is, yeah, you can actually opalize uh, or deposit opal, like, deposits <laughs> onto uh, whatever you like. Uh, and so oh, This he, is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so he's found a really fast way of doing it. So I think it takes a few weeks for him, if that, or maybe even a couple of days, but he hasn't revealed the recipe yet. But um, And you can actually go to his Patreon uh, for the recipes for a lot of the things that he does. Uh, so, yeah, so I'd like to opalize it. Uh, he has actually also taken, so he's opalized some of the insects and also put in flowers inside the insect shells. So there's a lot of beautiful things going on and it's like, oh, wow, these are the these are the people I've been waiting for, you know? <laughs> uh, look, this is fantastic. So two quick points. One, as always, the links will be at the 9pmedic.com because I've finally got the proper domain organised. Uh, <laughs> I'll grab all those details later. Uh, secondly, um, yeah, the we kind of gone a bit, Past the main cicada thing, I'm it's so sorry. like about a week. I, I about a week ago, it would have been great. Yeah, a week <laughs> ago, it was just deafening. There's still some out there, uh, but let's just say the magpies are just descending on them. Yeah, look, you know, any listeners out there, if you're in Australia, please do not kill any insects. But if you do find some dead butterflies or cicadas around, maybe even a praying mantis, do feel free to send Ooh. it to me in Melbourne. Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because you're moving back to Melbourne That's from right. New Zealand. Yeah. Good thing the Rona uh, has been brought back under control. <laughs> I, come I have back actually to that, had I to wait. A, yeah, I, I had to sort of postpone it from, from October to mid-November. Oh, it's now the end of November that I'll probably end up back mm. home. So, yeah. Anyway, so we were talking about the Dragon launch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, now you said you'd missed the launch itself, but this is really so significant, isn't it? I oh, mean, it's wonderful. Well, yeah, it's so wonderful because, I mean, I ended up watching the video, of course, because I hadn't realised. Um, so there is now a, a space calendar that is available, and I'm going to be ah. putting that into mine. So I tend to only find out like a few minutes before generally, otherwise when there's a launch. <laughs> and so this time, because I'm trying to move countries and organise my life, it's um, I completely missed it. 
so yeah, I managed to have a look and, you know, um, well, first of all, I thought it was interesting that they're now saying we're going to space as one because I feel as someone who has ranted a lot <laughs> about the how much I wish we could all go as, you know, like a common you know, as a human species rather than, you know, a few mm, private companies mm. and NASA. Um, and that was a message back in the 70s, and I'm old enough to remember that because it was all the Apollo-Soyuz missions uh, yeah. as the Cold War wound, well, that was in the 70s, that ramped up again, the Cold War ramped up again in the 80s, but then definitely over in the 90s. We have seen some of that cooperation, but you're right, it's all um, – yeah, it's all just commercial now, and we'll come back to that when we talk later about your your dear friend Elon Musk. But do, we do will it, definitely, it's it's wonderful, isn't it? I have to sort of talk about him now every time I have a conversation. With <laughs> <laughs> However, we do have a good thing on Elon Musk coming out, so you know I'm not going to preempt that too much. But yeah. I yeah, I was kind of interested in the change in the rhetoric. Uh, in what they're saying, I feel very heard, and I'm also feeling very smug and snide. Um, but it was really beautiful to see the the launch, even if it was a bit late. But what fascinated me the most was actually the docking. Um, oh, which I haven't watched yet. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it's very slow. It takes place over something like 15 minutes. Um, but what it calls to mind is the extremely slow version of a particular scene from Interstellar. So if you've seen Interstellar, think of the docking scene and you'll know what I'm talking about. It's... Perhaps technically less exciting because it had to happen so so quickly in a movie because it's not real, obviously. It's just CGI. Mm, mm. It's just amazing to watch because, again, it's sort of, you know, what we've imagined uh, and fantasised about and, you know, the, the books, the, the actual science fiction is reality again. And that's the amazing thing about science fiction is that it's, you know, it's a fairy tale that can come true, but you can mm. make it come true and... Uh, so it was, uh, it was a huge thrill to see that happen. The other thing I think is, though, that I think with space, there's a lot of things where the mundane becomes incredibly exciting. So this is... Like fifth- toilets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I well, do mean that, but like, no, oh, I mean- we now have modified the toilet so that female astronauts can use it more effectively. And you go, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. A, a good idea, B... Tell me more. Yeah, yeah. And and it's like um, it's also things like, you know, just seeing a, a photos of, of the dust and rocks on Mars is infinitely oh, more yeah. fascinating than the dust and rocks on Earth. Well, it's not depending on which dust you're looking at, but it's still just mind-blowing because you know it's another planet. Um, mm. And so it's making a mundane. So this is just a docking thing and it's very slow, but I was on the edge of my seat. <laughs> I was, I was just <laughs> waiting for that moment, you know, because it, it can still go wrong. Everything can still ah. go wrong. It is a difficult thing to do. Now, I'm reminded, this is great because, as I say, all the links are on the podcast website and I've, like, actually saved them as I go along and planning and now we've just thrown, like, another half a dozen that I'm going to have to look up later. And here's <laughs> another one. There is an in-web browser simulator of docking with the International Space Station where instead of it being automated, you've got your Soyuz spacecraft and you have to match all six kind of measurements of thing, right, because it's X, Y, Z, but there's also velocity in all of those directions and also there's gravity slightly distorting everything. 
Yeah, and yeah. And yeah. you you end up having to do it manually by firing the thing. And it's one that's been properly written by people who understand the physics. So it's just oh, like, fantastic. okay, this, yeah, it's a lot harder than you think. Oh, I have to admit, from the time I, I sort of saw that scene in Interstellar, I've been sort of secretly telling myself, maybe I should learn to fly. I think I would really oh, like that. Do it. Oh. Do it. We'll come back to all of this in a minute because, as, as as usual, of course, we've we've just gone <laughs> off into so many interesting directions. Um, do we want to talk about the proposed Twitter dislike button? Uh, we can talk uh, about it, but I wasn't. I, I, was, I was very late uh, to it, and I so, sort of don't know what it's about. And I think it's a very silly idea. Um, mm. Twitter mm. is not Facebook. Yeah, the beauty of Twitter is. Or at least was its simplicity, and so you don't. We don't need Twitter to become some weird mashup of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, but they they want that to happen because they need the eyeball hours for their venture capital investors. Sure, and, and I understand that. You know, they want to have a little, a few more things to measure things by, and so on. But a dislike, mm-hmm. I I don't think it will be healthy. <laughs> Did we just say we're not going to talk about it? And now we're oh. talking about it. Uh, I'm explaining why we okay. shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> all I all I will say is that I worry that a dislike button would introduce negativity to Twitter. Oh, and that would be dreadful because it's never happened before. No. Gold nanorods. So... I saw a thing. This is brand new research released on uh, Tuesday, mm-hmm. proper peer-reviewed research. Uh, apparently, these gold nanorods can lead to more secure banknotes and passports and quicker detection of harmful gas through a clever use of light because you wouldn't want a dumb use of light. Okay. Um, okay, so it's electrophoretic deposition, EPD, to assemble vertically-oriented single gold nanorods. Okay, there's a lot in that. I won't do the rest of that paragraph. What what does this mean? Oh, where shall we begin? Okay, so first of Gold all... Gold nanorods first. I was, was going to... What are yep, we making here? Exactly. So... What are we making and then how are we making it and then why are we making it? Okay, so what you should be imagining is, you know, those little... Um, oh, think of those spiky... Think of a hairbrush, basically. And you know the hairbrush Ooh. with the little sort of bobbles on the end, like they've got a little ball. It's like little pins. Um, yep. Not the, not to the, stop you scratching your scalp? With yeah, fibers. yeah. Not not the sort of the horsehair brushes, but, you know, the, 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 it, the point is you still got little tiny, tiny gold nanorods. So caps, mm-hmm. you know, think of them as very tiny capsules, capsule-shaped uh, uh, bits of gold. And you want to stand them up as the bristles on a hairbrush but in a flat surface, right? So it's made of a metal, and so there are certain properties of a metal that you can use. And you need to make sure that you pull the rod. So, you know, because they're they're long and they're, they're thin, right? So a capsule is like the ends of two cylinders stuck together. With a little, you know, right, right. It's, it's so hard to describe this without drawing it. I, so, I, I, I know this is this is not the medium to be doing this in, but that's all right. Let's as, as long as shout out if, if 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 I'm not being clear. So it's easy enough to actually get the nanorods to form a sheet 
when they're lying flat, and that's what my lab has done, um, and my my previous lab rather at Monash Uni, uh, where I was doing my doctorate, and we have specialised in uh, using all kinds of different nanoparticles to make these things called uh, super lattices or plasmine nanosheets, and they're basically uh, sorry. What was the second one there? Plasmine nanosheets. Plasmine nanosheets. Plasmine. Nanosheets make sense, very yeah. thin sheets. Yeah. They're, so Plasmine they're super... means. Oh, so I'm about to go into that. So they're Let's made not, of. Oh, do, we, do we need to go into that? Is that a deep rabbit hole that we'll never get out of? No. Okay. Yeah. So they're called plasmine because the way that uh, gold nanoparticles interact with light uh, means that there are because they're so tiny, they're within some of the wavelengths of light, of visible light. Oh, wow. Right. So there's certain wavelengths that are called a plasmonic resonance of the, the particles uh, at certain wavelengths. And um, so when you have a plasmine sheet, it means that you've, with, with all those particles in a sheet together, uh, they actually produce some resonance. Uh, and you can use that. So you can use that. Uh, which is why they're saying you can use these gold nanorods in banknotes and other things as security barcoding. So what they're doing is they're creating this material that you can use as security barcoding. And what they've done is they've used gold nanorods. Now, my lab has done the same thing using uh, different shapes of particles, but mm -hmm. most of them are actually lying flat. So what they're doing here, which is really novel, is to actually make the, the gold nano rods stand upright like the bristles on a hairbrush but in a big sheet. So the tricky thing is it's really easy to get these particles to kind of lie down flat and, you know, form really nice sort of lattices, near crystalline, you know, lattices. It's a, uh, I don't know if I can, you know, send you some photos of it, but they're very beautiful. <laughs> they're very beautiful because when you make these nanoparticles, they're, they're very regular and you've got to remember that we're not, kind of sitting there carving them individually <laughs> or breaking them off with light. We're just making them using chemicals and forcing the gold to form these shapes chemically. Wow. Yeah. So I'm going to say that oh, is this like I'm trying to think it's the way that crystals build up, right? You yes. just spray the stuff out they and it builds up like snowflakes, are. right? They are you actually just, crystals, yeah. Yeah. And I'm and jumping ahead, I can see right. So if you've got a crystal mm -hmm. in your banknote, and it's kind of down at light wavelengths, that means you shine a particular wavelength of light into it, and it may reflect back and look nice and bright, or it suddenly won't. Correct. If you've got it wrong. Correct. Wow, I remember my physics. <laughs> well done. That's exactly it. So it, we might think of a crystal as you know. A square chunky thing but in this case it, it's a crystallite it's it's a oh god crystalline is not the same as crystal but it's yeah anyway some of those properties are involved. crystalline is not the same as crystal. it is not is yeah, it so science it's, it's a, wonderful it's a it's a crystal they are tiny little crystals and you're forcing the growth of the crystals into certain shapes which still blows my mind because it's pretty much the closest thing to alchemy you can get um so, but what? Hang on, we're starting with gold. This is not alchemy. This is reverse <laughs> alchemy. Well, I mean, in terms of just uh, you put a few things together and then kapow, you've got gold nanoparticles. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what amazes me. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Thanks, thanks for that explanation. 
it is my sad duty to say happy birthday to COVID-19, at least uh, on Tuesday this week it was. Apparently, according to the Chinese government, the first uh, case of COVID-19 was actually back on the 17th of November last year, and that was some weeks before they announced the disease because they've, they've now gone back and figured it out. So, yes, one year ago, uh, a chap who was about 55 years old was the first person uh, to... Uh, be infected with a disease that so far killed 1.33 million people and infected 55 million so far. I, I know I'm bringing this down, but a year, oh. a year. Upali, all right, we haven't known about it for the whole year, but <laughs> how long does this feel? What? What? It's been I mean, a difficult I, decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, you know. <laughs> You know, I, I was only 25 when this year began. I mean, <laughs> Same. And, and now I think I'm yeah. like 50. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, I go a bit beyond that, but let's not talk about that. Um, more seriously, okay, we should. This is this has been an incredible year. Um, Looking back, and I'm stuck because there's so much going through my head right now. It's, like, oh, it's hard wow, to focus on which which horror and difficulty do we focus on? That sort of thing, right? <laughs> well, can we focus on some positive things? Okay. For this podcast, how incredibly the world's scientific community has come together. I heard on um, the ABC's excellent Corona Cast daily podcast today that we might actually. Like really, not not pretend pretends, but actually really start having a vaccine in January, two months away. Isn't that amazing? Like that's so fast. I feel like, um, you know, a lot of the time we uh, when when you ask people, people like to, uh, you know, what are the greatest human achievements? And people say we put a man on the moon, and it's it's very obvious, very clear. And you know, I'm obviously a very big fan, but there are other things mm. like medical advances that are just as important and vaccines and antibiotics fall into that category. And I'm going to throw into that sewerage, sewerage systems. Yes. They've actually been around for a long, long while though. I, I, I know, but like in terms 20, of... Like 20,000 years. <laughs> uh, okay. You're, yeah, yeah, all right. I mean, obviously I'm referring back to Jon Snow and the cholera epidemics in oh, London right, yeah. during the Victorian era. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think sorry, my... white, yeah. Sorry, white people history. I, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think what you mean is epidemiology as opposed to sewerage as I a mean, system. Yes. Yeah. So epidemiology yes. <laughs> kind of started with, with Jon Snow in Western science as a formalised thing, I suppose. Uh, I, I guess, you know, when it comes to germ theory, I've, you know, I, I learned it from Pasteur and it didn't kind of bother with anything else. So it was only years right. later that I found well, out. I will just say um, that the uh, TV series Victoria in the series that's currently on ABC iView, there is a whole episode about Jon Snow oh, and fantastic. the collar epidemic. And it's so fantastic to see him or the actor playing him, uh, with that famous map and he's colouring in the dots around that pump, water pump in Soho. Uh, so a friend of mine who's who's in biostatistics uh, and worked for New South Wales Health, uh, in his living room he has a copy of that map up on the wall. Oh, so fantastic. I'm quite used to it. Watch, seeing an actor playing it with his pen drawing in the dots. 
around it. And I didn't know Jon Snow had a stammer. I didn't know that either. Ah, it's hmm. portrayed very well. He was shy, a Yorkshireman, so therefore he wasn't appreciated. He was yeah. seen as a bit of a radical. Yeah. Um, the establishment. <laughs> once, once more, we've gone off. Where were we? <laughs> oh, COVID-19. COVID I remember that. Well, I, I guess really <laughs> the point is um, uh, just a quick final note. Because COVID-19 is hilarious, right? <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. Uh, no, just a quick final note, though, on, on Jon Snow. There's a, a wonderful book um, by a very famous Australian authoress who I have actually – Authoress. Know, thank you. Well, I, and. For my, no, I like that because some of the female editors I've worked for have called themselves editrix. That it's great. Um, the Year of Wonders, but I can't. For some reason, I cannot recall Geraldine something. Yeah, Geraldine Brooks. That's that's it. Yeah, it's it's a kind of uh, it, it's it's historical fiction, but it is actually about. Uh, epidemiology in a way it's sort of a, a an almost a, a a lovely rewriting of of john snow uh john snow's story but from a very different time okay look that's that sounds fantastic <laughs> and the things that have, have really hit me this week is hearing generalist journalists like not science journalists talking about mrna and talking about um <laughs> proteins and other things. There are some journalists, you know, I mean, last time we talked about the awful, dreadful people in far-right media who who just had no idea what they're talking about. But on the positive side, we've seen so many people in the media, uh, like, actually learning about this stuff and talking intelligently about it. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, so I, I think Do we need to really kill that many people to make science communication work? Oh, That's, look, I suppose, the question. As a molecular Ooh, biologist, dark. it is slightly frustrating that it has taken a pandemic for people to give a damn about proteins and RNA and DNA, which are my bread and mm. butter because I've been trying very hard. <laughs> people <laughs> respond more to space, but now you can show them a picture of cells and you can show them a virus coat and they'll have an idea of what you're talking about. And that's that's fantastic. Rather, it had taken yeah. a pandemic, but <laughs> I'm glad people but. are taking it seriously. And as and as we were discussing, which is actually you know uh, the topic we're t we were discussing is you're watching science real time. You're watching yeah. it happen real time, uh, and so the the illness would probably have been around a lot longer than, you know, the actual official birth date because that's when they would have, you know, finally gone, okay, this is actually a distinct illness. It's not pneumonia. It's not just the flu. It's a, it's actually a co terrible combination of all of these things. Uh, well, I'll actually jump ahead and mention that because in uh, an article in The Independent, the UK paper, which uh, reminded me it was the first uh, birthday from Chinese official research back, yeah. This is disputed because there's research out of Italy. Yes. They've gone back and done antibody testing in blood samples on file. They think it might go back as early as September last year. I think that actually makes much more sense. Um, we, because China was the first to report a number of cases uh, and, you know, it was their doctors that sort of realised that there was a, a, a unique respiratory... Like a new thing, yeah. Yeah, a unique respiratory illness... People assume that it's 
it originated in China and for a number of reasons, other reasons, you know, complicated reasons, political, social, and just pretty racist as well. Just say racist. Okay, fine, because people are racist. But, yeah, yeah, I I have uh, heard about the fact that they're finding samples that suggest that it was in Italy that early. So either if it did, in fact, originate in China, it got them to Europe much, much faster, or it originated somewhere other than China. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, are you going to say mink? (laughs) To be honest, I would actually think that that's a fair, uh, that would be a reasonable assumption. To throw that in, I should say that uh, one of the Scandinavian countries or others, they we have seen what is currently being described as a back infection from hu- humans into the mink population, mink being not just a fancy thing you make coats out of, but it is an actual animal. A tiny little furry animal, yeah. It's kind of a ferret, right, isn't it? Kind yeah, of broadly it's, it's, in it's, that. It's sort of a cuter ferret. Yeah. Ferrets are pretty cute. They but are. anyway, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is being detected in uh, northern and eastern Europe that the mink population uh, is showing up being infected. But like, yeah, this could be another pathway. Well, yeah, because um, it's, they're, they're actually culling mink farms at the moment because they are such massive reservoirs of the disease. So it's possible that perhaps there was a virus that went to humans, from humans to mink and back again, uh, or rather they went to mink and so now they're widely infected, or uh, they are the originators or the reservoir of this particular coronavirus and then that was transmitted to humans and so on and so forth. I would be happier with that as the truth because I'm a big fan of the pangolin and bats. Yes, I, I don't really buy that pangolin story. I, I, I think it's... All right, all right, maybe not the pangolin. Well, good, because I like pangolins. <laughs> oh, no, I'm just saying that's my personal opinion. I haven't actually looked at the data enough to be sure, but it, yes, it doesn't... I, I, yes, I should remind the world that neither of us are epidemiologists <laughs> or virologists or, yeah, this is not us. Well, you might I, as well I, listen to Adam Creighton. No, I haven't actually read oh. read, up, read up on it. So, yeah, oh, that okay. guy. Sorry, I, I'd managed uh, to erase yeah. him from my brain. Sorry, but sorry. <laughs> what's interesting about all of the SARS viruses so far, so this is like the Middle Eastern one, uh, the original SARS virus, they all seem to, so coronaviruses basically of this particular type do seem to come from bat populations. So I think the likelihood of it coming from a bat is high. The question is what was the intermediate animal, if any? And people want to think of really dramatic, you know, ways of of this happening uh, as if it were almost a planned thing, but it's not. This is what happens with viruses. They evolve, uh, then they might jump across species and you end up, you know, it it turns out that the, the virus is really bad for humans and maybe it's fine in bats or whatever. But sometimes... We saw the same thing happen with HIV. Um, yes. Where there was this idea that it was something that happened in Africa and America was involved and it was manufactured and whatever. Now, that theory was first put out, would you believe, by Soviet, well, hang on, we're 84, yes, still Soviet intelligence who managed to plant the story in an Indian newspaper that somehow American experiments were responsible for HIV. And the the interesting thing is, like, how do we know this? The answer is 
a former KGB senior officer, Oleg Gordievsky, who in fact at the time was a double agent for MI6 in the <laughs> UK, um, said so. And he said, yeah, he, he actually named in his, his history of the KGB um, the specific Indian newspaper that first ran the story and then it spread from there and it's taken on a life of its own. And indeed, the KGB stopped this disinformation operation, brackets, disinformation is an anglicisation of a Russian word. I mean, they, they are the masters of this. But um, they officially stopped doing this because they realised this this is a ludicrous story. The evidence is there. Like, like no one's going to believe it anymore. But people do. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because obviously we, we only get to know about certain dangerous disease-causing agents like viruses or bacteria when there are sensational strains of them that cause sensational illnesses or sudden death mm. or mm. pandemics. But in reality, there's actually many kinds of that type of virus already extant. Uh, yeah. Well, something that might turn it around even further is a paper from uh, the National Institutes of Health in the United States, uh, which says that, okay, for people who are in intensive care units, uh, this may not be a deal, but for survivors of COVID-19, apparently erectile dysfunction <laughs> is a thing. So all of those guys who were not wanting to wear a mask because it detracted from their masculinity, it's like, do you really, okay, don't wear a mask, you may end up with floppy bits. Oh, dear. Uh, this is going to, is this going to change it? I don't know. It might help. <laughs> I don't think it will change it, but I think um, the fact that, and again, because pe different people are responding differently to the, to the disease, you know, the, 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 the kind of morbidity that they have varies from patient to patient but for severely ill people in in icu and so on you know they suffer greatly they have neurological damage uh and that's probably what's affecting you know the resulting in some of the dysfunction uh mm, in, say, in mm. some of the survivors um so it's it's not an ordinary cold it's not an ordinary pneumonia it's going no. much much further than that and it's attacking many many things uh, this is the thing that hits me and sorry to cut you off again but you know i'm a bloke and it's what i do <laughs> no it's, but, it's called a conversation still <laughs> yeah all right thank you um i know you're tough enough to tell me to you know shut the fuck up <laughs> if i'm missing an important point but so many of those you know fox news right-wing commentators only look at the death rate yes and it's like no but for all the people who don't die which is most of them, they're ending up with horrible, horrible chronic conditions that we don't exactly. understand yet. And erectile dysfunction is not the main one. There, You know, there's, well, what have we got? We've got chronic fatigue. We've got breathlessness. We've got mental illness coming through, depression. Con yeah, and I We think don't know yet. Exactly. And, and, and even sort of heart conditions. And so, mm. you know, as with influenza, the real issue with SARS-CoV is what the body does, the cytokine, you know, the cytokine storm in response, and that's what makes us very ill. Uh, and it's Say a severity. The cytokine response. Cytokine, cytokine. Either cytokine. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, the, the, there are so many words that I never actually get to hear said in public 
you know. I know, and, and I know. Because, you know, if we talk about cytokines, we'll often just actually name the cytokine rather than going, of course. Cytokines. So, I yeah. mean, when as a kid, I was one of those people who took a long time to realise it's not pronounced hyperbole. Hyperbole. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> like, like, seriously, I was in my 20s before I knew the right way to pronounce that. Oh, no, I know. I think I was like in my 30s because, you know, the only other, uh, other ones. Because you wasn't... just write it down. Like, you, I suspect you were like me and you learnt a, a lot because you just read voraciously exactly. as a kid. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Took, it, took a, it took a little bit of time to realise that Penelope was the same as Penelope, for instance. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah, I had, yeah. Uh, yes, I think I had that one as well. <laughs> Oh okay, so just quickly check. And it's not anti- It's not antilope for the creature, is it? It's antelope. <laughs> no, but you see that was antelope, penelope. Exactly. <laughs> like it, it makes perfect sense. You, you've, you've read the word antelope. You've heard the word antelope. So why isn't it penelope? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh man, uh, oh, English. It's such a bitch of a language. It's a rich language, <laughs> oh, as Margot said. Language. Sorry. On the, you know, um. Okay, so just quickly checking up on... Cytokine. Just as, a, as an aside, on one of the earlier episodes of The Crown, I think back in Series 1 or 2, where they're talking about John F. Kennedy's wife, Jacqueline Kennedy, uh, where they were going, oh, wow, she'd done so well uh, because she could speak French when she was in Paris. And the Queen just goes, well, we can all, we can all speak French. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just like, it's just such a fabulous line. No. (laughs) But, you know, look, again, this is a digression. I mean, from her point of view, probably. I I know. And we'll come back to the crown later. No, I was just going to, okay, I'm saying that I'm about to go into a very, very quick digression. I was to say that because the Queen is effectively descended from German and Norman stock, it means that the English aristocracy is is primarily from Norman stock uh, and they would have spoken French and they did primarily speak French and it was regarded as the better language for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, okay, that is that is actually a fair point. So, yeah, I'll take all of that. That is an unfair criticism. It's right. And uh, I'm watching the series Victoria as well. And, of course, because French was the diplomatic language. Oh, was it? Oh. You know what's interesting? Yeah, before English became – and English now is, everything's in English. But up until what we would call the Victorian era, French was the diplomatic language. Oh. Latin was the scientific ah. language. And the religious language, yes. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, so wait, the cytokine storm, what's that? The cytokine storm is uh, part of the immune system's response to infection. Uh, and it's kind of this sort of uh, inflammatory response. Uh, and you end up with this huge um, pumping out of, of these uh, substances called cytokines into the body. And part of that can result in damage to organs if there's too much of it. Can end up with damage uh, to organs and so on, and that's what that's why that's why we we're, we're very wary and careful about influenza, uh, and it's why people are becoming extremely ill in um, co- with COVID nineteen. To change the uh, tax slightly, uh, meanwhile in the United States, land of freedom, people <laughs> are saying this. Joining me now is Dr. Scott Atlas, Special Advisor to the President and Stanford University's Hoover Institution Senior Fellow. Uh, Dr. Atlas, good to have you back on the program tonight. Thanks for having me. You bet. In response to the literally thousands of emails I get, 
from people all over the country begging me to figure out how to end the lockdowns. I get emails, I would say, uh, you know, every couple of weeks from someone who has had a family member commit suicide because of the lockdown. I have people begging me to do anything I can to end the lockdown. Yes, there are more cases in the winter. Yes, there are more cases in, indoors. And we know this with this uh, virus. And the, that's the problem. When you lock down, and because we had states that were restricting businesses, restricting uh, activities, we force cases to be building up in this season. When you cannot social distance, it's exactly this reason why it's more dangerous now that we slowed cases from coming up into the winter. You can't social distance from your elderly family member when you can't go outside. So yes, I agree we should have activities outside. Yes, I agree we need ventilation. Yes, we should uh, reduce <clears throat> large group indoor activities, use social distancing. We need to protect our, our vulnerable, high-risk senior family members. All these things I completely agree with. There's nothing there that isn't agreeable. But what the problem is, I don't agree you should, you should close schools. I don't agree you should not have in-person learning. And this kind of isolation is one of the unspoken tragedies of the elderly who are now being told, don't see your family at Thanksgiving. For many people, this is their final Thanksgiving, believe it or not. What are we doing here? I think we have to have a policy, which I have been advocating, which is a whole person, whole health policy. It's not about just stopping cases of COVID. We have to talk about the damage of the policy itself. Now, before we talk about that, Ubali, I should explain who Dr. Scott Atlas is. He was Trump's choice for an advisor on the White House Corona Task Force. He was appointed in August, three months ago. Uh, he is a professor of neuroradiology, sure, but I should say that in the American sense, a professor is just someone who did a few lectures at some point. <laughs> But it's my, true, though, let, isn't let it? Let us hope that none of my academic friends hear this. <laughs> That's true, though. <laughs> I think... Um, All right. I think what I... All I'm, right, but he's... I will say, before we go on, he's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, oh. which is, quote, a conservative think tank. So there are some sensible statements in there, but, but part of it to me is, hey, for some of these people, it's their last Thanksgiving, so let them meet up. It was a very sort of, it was a very strange um, statement <laughs> that he made because he basically said, no, we should definitely go out, but we should also stay in and we should also consider all yeah. the implications, but also we should not lock down and people should be allowed to see their grandkids so that they can die, um, you know, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was so, um, it was so strange. Um and I wanted to play the whole clip because people have said, oh, he just said it'll be their last um, um, Thanksgiving. I mean, yes, that is true for a number of old people, um, but but I wanted to play the whole thing because it was a little more nuanced than that. I mean, not a whole lot, but a bit. It was quite a mind a mind twister because his logic was so strange in, in, in some of it, in some parts of it. It's like, yes, you're on the right track, you're on the track. Oh, wait, what? No. It's like when you're talking to someone who seems perfectly reasonable and then they tell you, oh, no, no, no. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> um, we've been talking about COVID-19 a lot today and, and rightly so. Happy uh, anniversary, everybody. Yay, yeah. <laughs> um, according to some research I've seen, 
Something like 40% of Americans say they do plan to gather in groups or 10 or more for the holiday season, despite the rules. 33% of them say they wouldn't require their friends or family to wear masks. Quarter of them, they wouldn't practice social distancing. Um, yeah, Thanksgiving is Thursday next week, the 26th of November, for all of you who are not in North America and have no idea what Thanksgiving means. Yeah, things are going to look pretty grim in the the lead up to Christmas. But one thing I do love is this headline from Vanity Fair the other day. Trump says New York won't get vaccine right away because he's a petty little bitch. <laughs> Never a truer word. <laughs> I am loving some of the the sort of second rank American coverage of this Vanity Fair has been Vanity Fair has been doing incredibly deep uh, coverage of this whole thing, and also Teen Vogue. Teen Vogue, Vogue. shout out to Teen Vogue. Let's hear it for Teen Vogue. They're doing a fantastic job. Thank you, guys. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, and just very briefly. Um, the Australian National Dictionary Centre, which is not Macquarie Dictionary, so I don't know, I don't really rate them, but they have <laughs> named as Australia's 2020 word of the year, ISO, because ISO for isolation has led to so many things. We had ISO baking, ISO kilos from <laughs> eating all your ISO baking, which ended up with an ISO waistline, and we had ISO haircuts, which were not haircuts, obviously, ISO fashion. So uh, it's, fabulous. Thank you to that. It's, ISO? It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's so Aussie. <laughs> it's been a year. And um, as you were saying, it's sort of like uh, America has uh, – quite a lot of America's doctors seem to be extremely politicised and strangely yeah. conservative in the face of all evidence. And um, it's like uh, suddenly the germ theory of disease is not something that you think about when it comes to this, which is basically, you know, contact is the issue. So if you end up in a room with all your rellos, I don't, I'm not. I'm not actually sure that we're in germ a, theory is left wing. It's left wing. <laughs> Facts and reality are left wing, and so we oppose yeah. it. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, you cannot. You just can't make up reality per se. <laughs> Uh, but uh, it's it's tragic and it's it's just going to get worse. I mean, there's a million new cases in Texas this week yeah. alone. It is it is horrifying to watch. Uh, I saw the other day. I think the figure is something like is it one in three hundred Americans are COVID positive? Yeah, ish. I mean, and we don't know. You know, we really don't know. Um, I will return to this in a future podcast. Just quickly, I should mention that the space station docking simulator uh, that we talked about just before, it's from SpaceX, uh, and therefore you're not flying a Soyuz spacecraft, you're flying a Dragon 2 uh, in this uh, particular instance. Although, isn't that uncrewed? Anyway, look, at links on the website. It's it's kind of fun. Uh, Also, what else do I need to tell you? Oh, yes, next guest. And I'm not sure whether this will be in one week or two weeks, but next up, uh, our guest will be Andrew P. Street, journalist, commentator, uh, music fan. Uh, He uh, is a lot of fun. 
Uh, so that's coming up very soon. I will email you with the deadlines for uh, your conversation topics and trigger words uh, once once we've set a recording date. Uh, and of course, thank you. Uh, for all of you people who have bought trigger words and conversation topics or have supported the podcast in some other way. You know how this works. You're generous. You keep this happening. So thank you to all of the people who contributed, in particular to the 9pm end of Spring Series 2020. Uh, they're all listed on the website, except those that didn't want to be. Uh, but it's it's not too late to contribute, right? Um if you'd like to join these generous people, uh, just pop over to the 9pmedic.com slash tip. The 9pmedic.com slash tip. As I keep saying, please take care of your own people first in these weird quarantines. But yeah, if you can help me out, that's always lovely, isn't it? And yes, Yup DeVitt has injected a trigger word into today's proceedings. He's a longtime supporter of the pod. And he says, Upali, chocolate. Mm, yeah. What does that trigger? Uh, yum? Chocolate. So at the moment, I'm very, very keen on uh, so on Wishika's almond bars. So there's tiny little, they do these little uh, tiny chocolate bars that are full of either peanuts or roasted almonds and they can come in dark chocolate or milk chocolate. And I eat, say, you know, a couple, maybe 10, maybe five of a week. Uh, not that bad. Okay. I'm joking. But they're very Moorish. And I did 10 or 5 bars or 10 or 5 like cubes. Oh god, they're very small. They're very, <laughs> they're very small bars. I actually forget to buy them most of the time. Lucky, lucky for, lucky for me. But I didn't know that Whitaker's was actually kiwi, and I had assumed that it was actually. Oh really? Yeah, I thought it was American. I was literally about to ask you: Are they British or American? No, so they're kiwi, and uh, it turns out that so Nigella Lawson was actually shipped out here. Uh, you know, back in the day last year. Uh, in, in like a crate in suspended animation. <laughs> and she did an ad for it. But I remember getting Whitaker's chocolate, you know, when I was like 10 years old um, mm. because my, my dad's boss had a habit of, who was a professor in um, astrobiology, he would uh, go to America and then come back to Sri Lanka He'd always buy a box of chocolate for us. Uh, and one time he didn't. And apparently, I don't recall this, but my dad says it's true. He, I, I said, oh, had, you know, dad said, oh, he's back again. The boss is back. And I said, prove it. Where's the chocolate? And so I got a, <laughs> that's how I ended up with Whitaker's. And so Whitaker's has always been in the back of my mind. I simply assumed it was America. <laughs> and then I arrived he bought here it in America, yeah. Everywhere. <laughs> okay. Well, look, for me, I'm afraid I'm I'm just a fan of your your basic Cadbury's milk chocolate I'm, in the bar because I go back to when I was a kid in country South Australia. Yeah. And we lived on a farm that was failing and we were poor. Let's not put too fine a point on it. And so that was so much the Christmas treat is the yeah. family got like one big block of it and it was doled out like in individual cubes as a special treat and the problem is now 
although I broadly don't have a sweet tooth and I have a much more savoury tooth. Now, if I do get chocolate, <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, I'm not poor anymore. I can have the whole fucking thing. <laughs> and I'm so lucky if, like, a large block lasts the evening and it's, it's so wrong. It's so bad. So there's a couple of things I would say in response. And the first is, everyone, we need to send still some chocolate. Uh, no, 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 no. Send send gin and send uh, cured meats and chocolate. Uh, but um, I no, no. Actually, I don't. I really don't. It's it's a stupid thing. It's I really don't have a sweet tooth. Oh. But at the same time, if it's there, I'll scoff it. And like, I don't buy chocolate. I what's bad for me is I'll buy uh, like pepperoni, a liverwurst. And, uh, oh, sun-dried tomatoes, don't leave me alone with a <laughs> jar of sun-dried tomatoes. They are very good. Well, I, oh, I used to be a massive sweet tooth, but as I've gotten older, I find that I just can't eat an entire cake the way I used to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't even finish Our a... metabolism slowed down, <laughs> yeah, yes. I can't even sort of eat a whole slice of cake at a cafe anymore. But um, I will, uh, part of that was... A response to the fact that I wasn't allowed to eat many sweets as a kid, and so oh, I, okay. yeah, I didn't get sweets very often when I was a little kid. And we'd have them at parties; that wasn't an issue. It wasn't like my mum was some kind of, you know, anti-sugar fanatic. She was; she just didn't give us sweets very often. And um, mm-hmm. when I when I learned That's how probably to, a good thing, yeah, 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 exactly. And so when I learned how to bake, I I, I was forced to learn to cook, and I realised that I could actually make my own sweet pies and cake. And that was it. Ooh. Yeah, I was like, okay, that's it. This is what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> we are both rebelling against that child of thing, right? It you is, didn't get yeah. much sweet stuff. And go, we didn't get much chocolate. And I love because we, my whole mother's side of the family, are Brosse Deutsch German. So there was Metwurst, which is kind of that equivalent of salami and so on. Oh, really? And, you know, we'd be given these like, micro thin slices like you nanotechnologists had nothing on my mother slicing <laughs> slicing meat so she was um, a pro <laughs> oh yeah 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 but like it was a thing we couldn't afford right yeah, um yeah but now oh yeah leave me alone with a fun of thing of salami and <laughs> oh god I've only just because it's that rebellion it's like yeah. I hated that as a kid and I want more and of course I used to steal it you know from the fridge. Well, we know, yeah, it is. It's very much a response to uh, what, what's the opposite of plenty? <laughs> I've forgotten. There's a beautiful phrase. Um, um, oh, God, what is it? Famine versus. Uh, famine. Yeah, famine. It's, famine. It's the sort of yeah. this relative famine and you're responding well, to in that. the Bible it's famine. Yeah, plenty and famine. Yeah. That's the biblical term. And it's a. Uh, Did you grow up as. What religion did you grow up under in Sri Lanka? Well, no, you were here in Australia <laughs> I was before here that. In Australia. I'm just, I, but uh, yeah. my family are uh, Sri Lankan Buddhists, but I didn't, you know. Apart, ah, of course. But I, but uh, until, until I was about ten years old, I didn't really have any religion, so I didn't really, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't taught any prayers or anything. Just a few sort of, you know, good good principles and that sort of thing. And my it's kind of the opposite. Normally, people get the indoctrination when they're a kid. Well, when we were moving back to Sri Lanka, then my mum was like, oh, I guess I better teach you some prayers or else it's going to look bad. <laughs> oh, God, I hope she doesn't and, and do this. <laughs> but, um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll set up a specific firewall block so your family 
can't hear this because I'm I'm intrigued about the timing of that because did you go back at the like oh no we promise we're not going to talk about Sri Lankan politics oh no no what happened was it was just that we were going back to Sri Lanka that's all and so dad had finished his degree in Tasmania and so we were going back to Sri Lanka uh and um because it was the first time back since I was like two years old or three years old uh and obviously by that stage I was like 10 years old, <laughs> able to mm. form, you know, nearly complete sentences sort of thing. So it's like <laughs> so, suddenly it's like, oh, I guess we better give us some culture, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but I, I became interested in Buddhism on my own. But the thing was that even oh, okay. I, I grew up in Tasmania and in Hobart and, in fact, in South Hobart and uh we even didn't even talk about Christianity that much. Like maybe a few of my okay. friends went to church now and then or maybe only at Christmas. But we were taught sort of like, okay, so this is what Easter is, this is what Christmas is, and that was it. Uh, and so I am incredibly ignorant. And so I've noticed this when I talk to other Australians on Twitter. It's like I, my upbringing was really, you know, <laughs> irreligious in so many ways because um, even my schools didn't talk about Christianity much. Interesting because, of course, as everyone listening to this knows, Australia is like broadly created as a Christian country simply because it was a British colony and so on, Uh, and other religions came along later. So even those people who came later have a broad understanding of what it means. Fascinating stuff. Look, we will come back to that, uh, but but I want to play a sting and then we can talk about your favourite person. (laughs) Can't wait. Tesla CEO Elon Musk said on Saturday that he most likely has a moderate case of COVID-19, though he continued to question the accuracy of the tests. In a tweet, he wrote that he was, quote, getting wildly different results from different labs, but added that his symptoms are that of a minor cold, which is no surprise since a coronavirus is a type of cold. He did not mention whether the tests were from polymerase chain reaction tests which are more accurate than rapid tests. On Thursday, Musk said that rapid antigen test results from the same machine and the same test returned two negative, then two positive results, all on the same day. Musk's presence at the launch of four NASA astronauts into orbit aboard his SpaceX company's spacecraft has been thrown into question due to COVID-19. The launch was pushed back from Saturday to Sunday due to unfavourable weather, according to NASA officials. So, again, there's lots going on there. Um, <laughs> oh, he's always got to be in the news, hasn't he? <laughs> he? He does. Now, the things I want to say quickly to set the background, okay, he took four rapid antigen tests, two came back negative, two came back positive. They are not especially reliable. Your um, um, I want to use the term viral load, but it's not that. But it needs to be up quite a bit, and the fact that two of them were negative and two positive is not unusual. But what I do love is that Dr. Emma Bell, who is actually a bioinformatics postdoc, did a wonderful tweet where she referred to him as, quote, what's bogus is that Space Karen didn't read up on the test before <laughs> tweeting to his millions of followers. That's why – here's why his results make perfect sense, and she then explained – 
but Space Karen became a Twitter trending topic. It's fantastic. <laughs> I have to admit, it's not actually. I saw that thread by Emma. It was really great. Um, mm. And I and I ended up following her um, because she's you know she's very good by by informatician. But I like and Space Karen, right? It's well, it's actually uh, not the first time I've heard it in relation to him, but I think it's the first time oh, I've really? seen it. Yeah, I've seen it go viral because other people sort of dropped it to me now and then when I'm sort of like, oh, God, Musk, why are you saying this again uh, sort of thing. And um, because, he, you know, he, he does that ha- have that habit of thinking he, you know, he, he understands. That he knows what he's talking about. He knows about. what he's talking yeah. about. Yeah, I, you know, I he's a he's a billionaire therefore he knows everything and people listen to him and that, well, that's right and, and that's why it's an issue when he he talks complete horse shit like this it's good as a first pass but doing a pcr is much more important because you're actually sitting there sequencing to make sure it is in fact that virus and so when he goes around saying well there's something fishy going on and of course it's you know i have a cold because it's a cold virus it's like yeah mate we 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 said that <laughs> that's why it's called a coronavirus <laughs> you know <laughs> and there was a there was another fantastic uh, tweet related to that so first was you know emily and <laughs> Aaron space karen and then the other one was a guy saying well you know elon is like everything else that he's he he thinks he's discovered he's extremely late uh, and thinks that he knows <laughs> everything about it. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's a bit sad because it's part of the whole misinformation thing uh, about COVID. I know, I know. Look, meanwhile, um, here's Mr. Musk, the beloved Mr. Musk, speaking at the Code Conference in 2016. Okay, it's four years ago, but you'll hear why this is relevant in just a minute. Thinking about life on Mars again, how do you how do you think about cultural unification, systems of government, uh, rules of law, establishing those uh, very early on? Well, I think I was just declared king of Mars a moment ago. Yeah, um, I like so, that. Yeah, take it. Yeah, thank Run. you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so the the uh, I think most likely the form of government on Mars would be a direct democracy. Um, not representative, so it would be people voting directly on on issues, um, and I think that's probably better because like the potential for corruption is substantially diminished in a direct versus a representative democracy. Um, so I think that's probably what will occur. Um, the I, I think there's some. I think so, I would recommend like some adjustment for. The inertia of laws is would would be wise in that it should probably be easier to remove a law than create one. Um, I think you know this is I would just be like let's just I mean I think I think that's probably probably good because just laws laws are have infinite life unless they're taken away. Um, so I think my recommendation would be like like something like let's say sixty percent of people need to. Uh, vote in a law, but at any point greater than 40% of people can remove it. Um, and any law should come with a sunset, with a built-in sunset provision. If it's not good enough to be voted back in, maybe it shouldn't be there. So that's, that's the framework for the government on Mars. I mean, that would be, be my recommendations. The direct democracy where, where it's slightly harder to, in, to, to put laws in place than to take them away and where laws don't just automatically live forever. You'll be a good king. 
Thank you, <laughs> Elon Musk. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You'd be a you'd be a good king. What sycophants? Um, that is actually appalling, <laughs> isn't it? Just it is really appalling. And I know that you've said this just to annoy me. Chosen <laughs> topic. Just I, I, yeah. Well, all right. Sprung. <laughs> Correct. I have. <laughs> yeah. You, you've been trying trying for several podcasts now to get a but. Um, as, as we all know, uh, you know, it's great to hear from Super Space Genius again. Space um, Karen. On this issue. Uh, Space Karen. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I I was just listening to this now, and, and it is the first time that I've heard it. And my first thought is, if this guy were not so rich, would anybody listen to him? And then I thought, well, these half-baked things are generally what we have to listen to from quite a lot of people. Okay, let's say a lot of white men. Mm -hmm. But there are also a lot of really great qualified white men who are making better... <laughs> policies and, and and essays than this but I we know, have to listen I know. to this I mean, guy not all white men right you know <laughs> exactly but it's like there are plenty of there's plenty of documentation and discussion around uh how we will manage uh the exploration of mars as it were or space there are existing treaties and instead at this conference uh, and generally, by the looks of it, you know, it's just, uh, not that Twitter is necessarily a perfect reflection of society. But oh, what? What? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to break it to you uh... still. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, this this thing that they actually allowed him and said, okay, yeah, you know, I, I, I thought I was the king of Mars. I thought we agreed. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, I, I would prefer you as king of Mars than Elon Musk. <laughs> I would prefer... <laughs> My friend's adorable golden retriever dog. <laughs> to be as king, king of, of Mars. Mars. Awesome. So, the reason that clip from four years ago is now relevant today is The Independent, again, leaks on the podcast website, has noted that if you look at the terms of services for SpaceX's Starlink project and others, which is, of course, Musk's thing, this document says quote, for services provided on Mars or in transit to Mars via Starship or other colonisation spacecraft, the parties recognise Mars as a free planet and that no Earth-based government has authority or sovereignty over Martian activities. That's in the, the TNCs of going on his Mars ship. Uh, and this is why I... I'm opposed to it generally because it's not that, you know, I don't believe in space travel. It's not that I don't believe in exploration or necessarily having private enterprise uh, build rockets. I have an issue with who gets to own uh -huh. these things. And, all and of his not language. only is he declaring Mars terra nullius, he, he is effectively in that declaring himself king of Mars. Yes, he's already declared Mars for himself, and and he's done that in many statements on Twitter. He's done that in many statements elsewhere, and I find it really disturbing that there's no pushback. There are no officials, not even at NASA, saying, "Mate, we have <laughs> mate, treaties. Mate. Yeah. We have treaties." Okay, so there are existing treaties, and uh, you know there are guidelines, and there are there are you know things that. W w the done things, as it were, what is it, the conventions. Um, We've talked about this for, what, 60 years now or something, 70 years. It's, exactly. It was a thing since the Cold War. I mean, that's the thing. Even in the Cold War, 
we understood that the moon didn't belong to America. They managed to get there. Yeah. They, they didn't own it, and no one was supposed to. But now, apparently, because this this one guy has, you know, this built, South built, African cunt. Sorry. <laughs> Your words, not mine. Uh, but but this rich dude wants to go to space, so he pays fantastic engineers to build these incredible rockets, and then he takes and credit they're for good, it. right? You know, they land on their tails. They do all like yeah, yeah, uh, and. and um, not so, that we know any of their names. Still, you're interrupting me a lot. Sorry. <laughs> can, can See, that's how to do it. <laughs> that was me being cranky. Sorry, um, but uh, you know, so this, this, his, you know, so great. We've got the wannabe Tony Stark, billionaire, <laughs> you know, sky over South African apartheid mining dynasty, you know. Apparently he owns it now and people are just going to let it happen mm -hmm. and he's got a whole cult-like following bec uh, behind him to push for this. I mean, he has 20 million followers on Twitter, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, 2021 or something like that, and that's just on Twitter. <laughs> and <sighs> other people, even uh, people who are not sort of fanatical about him, are still sort of like, well, I'm broadly supportive of him and why not? Why not just give it to him? It's like, well, no, <laughs> it exists for all of us. <laughs> And no, for, no, but I, I, I don't want to give no Mars one. to anyone. Yeah, it, no. Mars, right. sure, sure, space belongs to all of us, but it also belongs to none of us. And and so we don't need to, uh, again, this is a thing that I keep going on about, and I also gave a talk about decolonizing space um, oh. a few years ago. But uh, it's really important to, to remember that, you know, some things should not be owned and we should not make the same mistakes on other planets. We spoke about this on a previous episode with uh, Dr. Uh, with Dr. Alice Gorman, Dr. Space Junk, and I'll put a link uh, into that because uh, that was fabulous. Yeah, about those things. All right, we're on to the final segment. <laughs> Now, Upali, we, we hinted at this a bit just before, and it's only November, I know, but was Christmas a big thing in your family, given the, the kind of whole drift between Sri Lanka and here? Yeah, it is, actually. It's a very uh, – it's kind of odd. It's become a really big thing in our family. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, again, you know, primary school, kindergarten, I was told, you know, Christmas is this. The birth of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. and that was kind of you know it. We didn't delve into anything more than Christmas carols. Uh, oh, all right, like who's this bloke? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, like I knew who Jesus man, Christ a was. A man I of Middle Eastern appearance. <laughs> 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 so, um, but I was I was very very small. So I think I was in kindergarten or grade one, and I just learned of the existence of Christmas, or, or at least that's what okay. I remember. And when I came home my parents said oh yeah we got you a christmas tree we didn't want you to feel left out and so consequently we have celebrated it since the time i was about three or four years old even okay. even when we went to sri lanka so my parents freaking loved christmas but especially my dad my dad really loved it because i think he, he loved buying presents for us and he loved seeing mm -hmm. us enjoy opening them and uh, that it, is the thing about it, right? That is actually one of the big joys of yeah, Christmas for a family, right? Absolutely, especially if you have kids. And I think he's he's still kind of, you know, 
feel, feels uh, a little bit bad that you know he, he can't do the, you know pile us with presents because we're not little kids anymore you know sort of like that's great dad thanks for that you know <laughs> but, um, that is so sweet yeah yeah oh uh so even when we went to Sri Lanka because it was you know my brother and I were still quite young we did try and celebrate Christmas so my parents did actually get a branch of some tree or something similar, you know, kind <laughs> of pine-esque. And we would actually and, – and, and Pine-esque, and, that's a word. Yeah, because, I mean, it's the tropics. <laughs> you <know>? uh, yeah, <laughs> you fair really point. You don't anything that's like a pine tree. It's <laughs> pine-esque, yeah. kind of, you know, kind of, you know, not broad-leaved basically. So mm. then we came back here and then, um, you know, once I finished high school, for a few years we didn't celebrate Christmas. We'd put a tree out, you know, very desultory. But I – loved Christmas and so I started buying presents for everyone and then it just started again and then we started you know dad would invite some of his international students over for Christmas because they Uh you know they're from parts of Asia or elsewhere and had no idea what Christmas is like um (laughs) they didn't you know they're like they're from Mongolia or other places and they didn't celebrate it uh, yeah, Christmas isn't a big thing in Mongolia. No, I don't think so. But the thing is, because it's not ours culturally, uh, it's, we've had to adopt it. <laughs> so we we had to sort of sit around and go, okay, so some families do this, okay, and some families do Christmas Eve, right. Uh-huh, <laughs> so, particularly from a Germanic or Central European exactly. culture. So we just yeah. it was just like adopting which bits that my friends did that we liked <laughs> or was convenient for us. So we ended up having like Christmas dinner on Christmas Day or Christmas lunch on Christmas Day. Uh, and so now it's just become this massive thing where we, you know, we invite as many people as we can and have a giant feast uh, and then <laughs> uh, sit on the front steps and play music and get very, very uh, tipsy. <laughs> Drunk. Yeah. Look, and I think that's the core of it in an Australian context. But did, <laughs> how did you deal with, like, the winter iconography, you know, snow, sleighs, reindeer, etc.? Because that's always been like a question for me. Uh, look, we took it in our stride. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, Christmas was already an alien concept to us, so it wasn't well, a very yeah. big deal to sort of go, oh, it's actually, you know, a Northern European thing. <laughs> and um, so we just, we try to, we, we tend to follow English traditions because that's what we're familiar with <laughs> and uh, because of what other Australians do. Mm. Uh, and so this well, the whole snow thing was just like, oh, yeah, it's a thing. It's And we and now, of course, we think it's just funny. Um, but now I... I when I was a little kid, I because it, it, we always had Christmas. So ho- Christmas isn't a Hobart. We're always kind of cold and a bit miserable because uh, it's Hobart. What even in summer? Even in summer, it was sometimes you know it could sometimes be quite cold, and and then you'd hear about okay. snowfalls elsewhere, and you'd be like, "Why can't we have that? I mean, it's already. <laughs> why not just have the snow? Because the the weather's already terrible." <laughs> But now I, I can't even conceive of a cold Christmas. I, I, I love the fact that we have warm, summery days, except for that time when we had a giant hailstorm on Christmas Day <laughs> and it stripped everything from the trees and the, the, the hail was golf ball sized. But um, mm. I, I, I think we're so lucky and fortunate that we can have this really great celebration. Well, it's great for us anyway. <laughs> it's only, you know, because... We don't have extended family here, so it's our only sort of big celebration of the year together. 
Okay. Well, look, for me, and I will say, and I'm originally from Adelaide, so December in Adelaide is high 30 degrees Celsius. Americans, you'll need to... Tr- Americans, 100 Fahrenheit plus. It's hot, it's winter, and it's weird because, yeah, the whole... Well, it's not that weird because the whole... Um, Culture is about a big outside party with lots of food and lots of alcohol and whatever. But I was introduced later when I was in radio in Adelaide at what is now Radio Adelaide and the magnificent Keith Conlon. Anyone in Adelaide? Keith Conlon, you know who he is. He he introduced me to a Christmas carol called The North Wind, uh, a.k.a. Our Christmas Day, words by John Wheeler, the music by William G. Jaynes, and I'm sorry, Oopily, I'm going to do it as as Keith Conlon performed it for me one day. Yes. The north wind is tossing the leaves. <laughs> the red dust is over the town. The sparrows are under the eaves. <laughs> and the grass in the paddock is brown. As we lift up our voices to sing to the Christ child. <laughs> The heavenly <laughs> king. I won't do the second verse. <laughs> That's <but> awesome. <laughs> that is Christmas, right? It's red dust. It's the hot north wind. Everything's brown. It's definitely brown, but I mean, it varies so much because I've either grown up in in <laughs> Melbourne or Tasmania, and so Melbourne summers are kind of hit and miss. Um, yeah. Sometimes, and sometimes it'll be freezing at night. Uh, after a very oh, that's hot Melbourne, day. right? Yeah, that's Melbourne, and so it's yeah, it's um, but it's nice to hear one that's actually relevant to us, <laughs> <laughs> to, to Australia. Yeah, the second verse is is equivalent. It's it's great, and later up you might hear a version of that played, <laughs> like performed by someone a bit better. But yes, thank you, Keith Conlon, for, awesome. for really doing that. With we don't have a recording from it. It's back in the early eighties, but he just well, you do belted into it. <laughs> We do now. Um, In this context, a thing turned up for me, which is gingerbread houses are a a thing. Mm. I was introduced to charcuterie chalets. Ooh. Did you click through to see the photos? I actually didn't, no. I just saw gingerbread house and then my brain just went, ooh, gingerbread house. Oh, well, right. (laughs) Yeah. So charcuterie chalets are, it's basically you build houses out of charcuteries, right? You use crackers or breadsticks to make the walls and then you add prosciutto or salami for the roof and you use cheese or crudités for the details. Now, I only discovered today that crudités are not what I thought they were. I thought they were a thing along the lines of croutons. They are not. Crudités are the kind of sticks of carrot or or other vegetables that you dip in oil to nibble. Okay, that's a thing. So apparently in a uh, charcuterie chalet, uh, you can use mozzarella to make a snowman. Uh, you can grate some parmesan to look like snow on the top of everything or cut up a capsicum to make a winter sled. And the article I read, which I've linked to, the possibilities are endless, which is always a bad sign. You know, you know that sounds like a, uh, a very sweet hipster rendition of 70s cooking. 
doesn't it? It's 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 so you know sort of sixties seventies you know atomic era seventies white people could again <laughs> it, yeah atomic era uh, gelat gelat gel, jelly. Every, gelatinous yeah. kind of gelatinous lumps salads things and, <laughs> kind of things. You can just slice, you know, your cheese and celery jelly kind of thing. Um, given that charcuterie is, is quite a wonderful thing, uh, and my, isn't it just? And my apologies to to pigs, uh, but <laughs> fuck them. P- particularly as an ex vegetarian, this is you know it's it's sort of this kind if of if God. Okay, I know you're an ex-vegetarian, but if God had wanted us not to eat pigs, he wouldn't have made them so yummy. <laughs> yes, uh, anyway. <laughs> or is that the whole thing about temptation? I'll check that out with Father Carl I'm sorry, this is, this, this is just too Christian. It's not really from my background, so I'm just like, I'm yeah, so, let, I'm let, sorry. Let that's why. That's why likes. I think, yeah, I'm not going I to will interrupt. refer it to Father Carl, <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm not going to interrupt with my, you know, <laughs> my background's version of it. But uh, but it's, um, I mean, it's so delicious. It's like I would rather have sort of a traditional charcuterie board than go to that much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like this is such a, you know, it's going to be out and drying. Uh, why don't you just eat it? Like why would you yeah. bother making a snowman from mozzarella when you can just, you know, take your burrata, slice it into quarters and then drop it on a peach or something? And Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie Oliver once did that decades ago. Oh, hello. <laughs> no, this is this is when we, we first started watching him decades ago and we thought, oh, he's not that bad because <laughs> he basically um, toasted some dry chilies and some peaches or, or nectarines and then he sprinkled ham and some mozzarella and the chilies over. And I was like, wow, this is a brilliant dish. <laughs> Which brings us finally <laughs> to media representations of the great. Yeah, you know where I'm going with oh, this. No. The media representation of great British leaders. Now I know the Crown series four has just dropped on Netflix. I know you've watched it. I know I've watched it. Gillian mm. Anderson as Margaret Thatcher. I do now watch. you describe. <laughs> Oh, go on. I was just going to say, I do not approve of this casting choice, but she was okay. I thought she did very well, she did. but yeah. I will say that you describe yourself as a Gillian Anderson sexual. So that's not actually <laughs> my original term. <laughs> but uh, uh, my, my friend is. You said it. You said it. I am linking to the tweet. Oh, no, this no. is a thing I, that I said you said. It. No, it's, I said it, but I just want to point out that I didn't come up with the term. <laughs> I oh, like okay. to. I just want to cite my sources. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, <laughs> you know, uh, Imogen Ebsworth is the one who who came up with Julian uh, Anderson's sexual. Because I was saying to her, you know, I'm a straight woman, but she's really hot. You know, <laughs> she goes, "Don't worry, we're all Julian Anderson sexual." An attra- <laughs> yeah, she is <laughs> an attractive woman. Right? She's extremely beautiful, and and but she's also very. Oh. She has a wonderful fragility about her, uh, which. So it offended my sensibilities that she would be playing because I thought she made a very interesting Miss Havisham in the Dickens adaptation from a few years ago. Oh, yeah. And I had no idea. Like I didn't know anything about the casting of The Crown except that maybe Elizabeth Debicki was going to be Diana. And so I was a bit shocked when it wasn't Elizabeth Debicki. I was like, who's this? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it does okay though. It's it, I think it's good casting. It has. And, and it was actually a really, I found, very gripping um, 
season because even though I was like, oh, great, we're going to have Diana Mania again. You know, I already grew up with that. I don't need to go through it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think so, they've done well with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so they did make Thatcher slightly more sympathetic and uh, uh, but also not enough that, you know, you'd be sort of questioning your entire being afterwards just because Gillian Anderson was on there. But once I watched No, it, no, no, no. She did, she did convey that I am a hard woman, I am going to do this, I am hearing your criticism, but fuck you. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 I don't, and I guess that kind of leadership has, has its appeal. But I really like that. that so, and the horniness. Oh, God. Dominant woman, come on, that's a thing for many gentlemen. Well, maybe for British women. I mean, I can't speak to that. <laughs> maybe well, maybe yes. for upper-class British men. I mean, I feel like that, <laughs> I feel like it harkens back to one of the earlier episodes of the first season, first or second season of The Crown where, you know, I think it's um, uh, Queen Elizabeth asks for a tutor to teach her, you know, things like maths and science and whatnot. That yes, everybody because else she learned. was a young woman, yeah. a young woman who suddenly became queen and realised, hang on, I don't understand this stuff. Maybe I should understand this yeah, stuff. Yeah, or anything that anyone else in the entire planet does. Uh, and, and, uh, and so he says... Well, unless they work for Sky News. And uh, so he says to her, you know, they're upper-class British men. What they actually want is a good scolding from Nanny. And <laughs> yes. That was a fab- fabulous line. It was a fabulous line, but at the same time, I guess there's some degree of truth to it. And so Thatcher uh-huh. failed to be upper class, uh, but she still behaved in that way. And so there was there was still a so British Bridgman or at least politicians certainly like that style of leadership up to a point. <gasps> you know, when it makes them look bad in front of the other guys in Europe, right? <laughs> oh wow, this is probably the most insightful analysis of the Thatcher era that I've ever heard. <laughs> well, you know. Today. <laughs> patent pending, of course. <laughs> Just today. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's um, it was really, really interesting. But that, I think what the, 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 the clincher for me was, um, I mean, I have to admit that her performance and at least the script of, you know, the way that they presented her has made me respect Thatcher in a way that I, never did before i i did not respect her uh and, <laughs> but um obviously she had to contend I, to a lot but she's not a feminist figure and she's not a tragic no figure. uh there is a no. little tragedy but she says in and i hope you know if you're if, if you're still watching the crown or if you don't want any spoilers please block your ears yes but, please do but the episode about apartheid that was mm. was masterful i thought because at the very end uh, they sort of come to this we shall agree to disagree thing. And she says, you know, did mm. did one come to 48 or did 48 come to one? And then... Oh, that is that is the most awesome spoiler oh, in the entire fucking fourth season, but yes. Oh, no, have you not seen it? No, I have. Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, so I watched the whole thing, yeah. Yeah, no, yes. I've watched the whole thing twice yeah. already. Um, <laughs> so, I am on holiday. Well, how has there been time for that? I'm on holiday. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but the other thing was like she basically said, my son is in South Africa. Mm. And she had said, you know, mm. what I want people in this country to do is look out for number one, get themselves wealthy, and then if they feel like, you know, give a damn about other people, I, you know, consider whether they're worth spitting on. And <laughs> and so this is her attitude and she just displayed it so perfectly in that. I thought, Wow. 
yes. This is why I hate that her. That is. <laughs> well, yes, it's it's why you hate her, which I hate her. But at the same time, what, why, what she said resonated with so many people. It did. Take but care I, of your own first. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's, a, a, and I wonder if that's actually a very American attitude. Um, mm. But. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I haven't. Spent- <laughs> There's a whole fucking podcast episode <laughs> in that sentence, right? Is this an American attitude? Yes. But but the whole sort of portrayal of um, you know high high Tories as being a little bit upset that she wasn't passionate enough was it was pretty. <laughs> yes. I was sort of like, what are you trying to say? I mean, there are not very many high Tories, and the Tory party is effectively you know this kind of neoliberal that you know that old style of uh, noblesse oblige is gone. Um, mm. And that was their excuse for their privilege uh, and for their system. Uh, and so the Tories now are effectively, you know, they don't bother with high Toryism that much anymore. But at the time she was, yeah, she was a, a very distinct kind of conservative, a neoconservative, a, a, neo, a neoliberal rather than a, high, than a Tory per se, as they traditionally know, with, you know, with a sense of noblesse oblige and massive estates and bowing and scraping. And she had the temerity to be middle class uh, mm. or even lower middle class and, you know, what it was that they kept mm-hmm. going on about her, you know, shopkeeper father as if it were yeah. something bad to have used your own brain. At this point, I feel that it is completely necessary to play you a clip from um, the famous Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> on is, Margaret is Thatcher. Is this the one that I mentioned? <laughs> this is the clip that you mentioned, and as soon as you mentioned it, I've hit the search and found it. You also tell the story about getting a spanking from Margaret Thatcher. Yes, I've had physical contact with Mrs. Thatcher, <laughs> Baroness Thatcher. She knows. Were when you she an was, um, sexually, I was not politically. I used you, to, you thought she was attractive, physically attractive. I wrote when when, she, when she was first elected as leader. Most of the press, almost everyone in the press, thought the Tories had gone mad and they'd chosen this shrill suburban housewife. Everyone wrote in this rather snobbish way about her. Well, they must have been wrong, wasn't they? Because she went on to change the course of events very dramatically and British society. And I thought I was earlier than most to see that she had something. Charismatic, I would say, that was partly sexual. She had the most beautiful skin I've almost ever seen on a woman. Um, well, people amazingly say the same thing about eyes. Sarah Palin. Uh, do you uh, do you support Sarah Palin because of that? Uh, no, she has got no charisma of any kind. She, I can imagine her being mildly useful to a low-rent porn director. Yeah, that's from 2010 from a WNYC New York uh, interview. Isn't that the most amazing thing? Sarah Palin might be useful to a low-rent porn director, <laughs> but his... <laughs> I'm sorry, I think you need to understand, like, Hitchens is extremely refined and thinky, okay? He's not yeah. going to have any old crumpet, and Sarah Palin is any <laughs> old crumpet. <laughs> his tastes are far more sophisticated. <laughs> he wants Margaret. Oh, wow. he kept, I mean, there are interviews with Hitchens, and this is, I think this is something I said in my tweet. It's like, don't worry, just always remember what Hitchens would say about Thatcher. And because he thought that, she, he said that she reeked of sex and he used to go on about it. And, and, and I was just like, oh, I don't really want to know, but it does explain quite a lot about you, you know. <laughs> about Hitchens, certainly, but yes. having watched Gillian Anderson's performance of Thatcher in The Crown. No, this is not reeking of sex. It's reeking of power. 
It's power, it's exactly. It's determination. And I, and I think that, I mean, you know, she's she's clearly a brilliant politician and an extremely capable leader. Uh, mm, there's nothing mm. wrong, you know, there's nothing wrong with that woman's brain at, at all. It's just that, you know. You and I just happen to disagree with her on about 90% of what she did. 90, yeah, 99, 95, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, but she's strategically. you have to admire yeah. the strategy and the tactics in the same way that, yes, John Howard, exactly. former Prime Minister of Australia, yeah. can't stand. But you have to admire how he played the game and that is a separate issue, right, in the same way you can go to a sporting match and go, all right, my team lost but by God, the other side was good. Absolutely. And and that is exactly the example I would have used is John Howard. Like, he, again, absolutely mm. brilliant politician, very deft, deft, and he understood oh, yeah. the Australian people. And he under, so Hawkey, you know, understood the Australian people. Hawkey. Yeah. You know, but, but by the time Howard was electable again, he, Australia had changed sufficiently or become sufficiently, you know, anxious and unhappy and, in a recession, for him to to turn up and 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 be that kind of prime minister, uh, and so Thatcher, in, in her own ways, again, a brilliant operator, uh, and I, I would really like to see some left wing politicians like that. You know, I, 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 it's like you're <laughs> yeah, you're, you're there, that. you're there to do a job, so do it. You know. That is the most perfect end line to this podcast. <laughs> Upali Devasekra, thank you so much. Thank I you know for we said me. we wouldn't end up talking for two hours, oh, we but did. we did. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. Love your work. See you next time. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Uh, that's the edict for now. All the links are over at the website, the9pmedict.com. Go there to tip me subscribe to the podcast uh, go out from there to you know whatever you know this stuff anyway next episode will be with the wonderful andrew p street sometime in the next two weeks until then i'm still garyan wash your hands the 9 p.m edict is a skank media production sorry Sing